0: Verses 35 through 50. And again, we skipped the, the triumphal entry. We'll cover that when we get, when we get to, uh, to Palm Sunday. But again, when we talk about John chapter 12, this is a shift in the book, and the rest of the book, the next eight chapters are going to cover Easter. That's quite a detailed look, especially when you look at the other Gospels. John really takes his time and walks us through this portion of it, and he uses extremely beautiful language as we go. So we're in, John, we're in John chapter 12, verses 35 through 50, and it says this. It says, Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer, while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere... He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me. He commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So again, here we are. We are in the, the first Sunday in the season of Lent. where those 40 days leading up to Easter. And the rest of the Gospel of John will deal... With the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And in John, this is after the triumphal entry and after Jesus has driven out the money changers for the second time. Verse 36 says that when Jesus finished speaking, he left and hid himself from them. The people will go to the temple looking for Jesus and they will not find him. And I'm going to immediately jump to another scripture in Romans chapter 1 if you want to turn there. But briefly, this is important. I I titled this, Time's Up. Time's Up. And what I want for us to have out of this is a sense of urgency. That's what this whole scripture is about, is a sense of urgency and a sense of finality. This is the last time that Jesus is going to speak in front of the crowds. From here on out, he is going to speak to the disciples and a few chosen believers. This is the last time that he pleads in front of the Jewish people to say to them, please turn from what you are doing. Please believe, repent, come back, do it now. Time's up. Over and over and over again, Jesus has said, soon. He said, soon you will not see me soon you will not have me soon i will not be there well sometimes when he said soon he meant a couple of years sometimes when he said soon he meant a couple of days now it's down to hours in this case we are in the last week and the time's up it's over he had 3 years of public ministry he has spoken here this is the third passover where he has come to jerusalem and and spoken to the people to the seat of the Jerusalem, to, of the Jewish faith. He has spoken to them. This is the last time. This is the last call. And so with that sense of urgency, we're going to get a setting. We're going to Romans chapter 1 because it speaks about where we live today. And I think when we read through this, as you are the little things are going to click in your mind going, hey, this sounds like 2022. What's Paul talking about? So let's flip there. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Last week, we closed with a call to step into the light, to walk in the light. And that is where we begin, is with a call to step into the light. We have read that portion of Romans to get a heavenly perspective on the status of the world. When Paul when the Holy Spirit, when they're talking, they're, the conclusion they reached was this: the material world and mankind are not on the right path. In his letter to the Church in the Rome, Paul wanted to start off with a news update, with a picture of what God thinks about what's going on in the world. In reading through Romans, we nod our heads because we see similar things in our culture. I can remember. You guys ever read the Left Behind series, the, the LaHaye and Jenkins, the, the Left Behind series? W- reading through those books, you know, there's, he, uh, they, they, they take a very literal view of Revelation. Everything is a literal picture of what's in Revelation. But one of the things that struck me in there, they were talking about before all that happened, how the world had changed, how pornography specifically had become so readily accessible and readily present on every single major media platform. Reading that, you know, whatever it was, 15, 20 years ago, I thought, no way that's going to happen. And here we are. Pornography and sexual immorality of all kinds has become mainstream and readily available in our culture. And Paul, standing in a polytheist culture, where the people engaged in orgies and where pedophilia was a status symbol, boldly proclaimed condemnation on sexual sin. But... I want to want to draw your attention to how the Gospels talk about judgment, judgment and condemnation. Like redemption and forgiveness, they are a relationship. In redemption, you choose God and God chooses you. It takes both. And if there is something that should ring through today and through this first Sunday of Lent, it is this. Time's up. If you feel the pull of the Holy Spirit, if the Word of God speaks to you at all, if you have any inkling of the calling of God, run towards it now. Don't wait. Don't put it off. We're going to see why in a moment. But lean into, run into repentance and turning towards God. Time's up. Our passage in John is the final plea Jesus makes to the people in Jerusalem. After this, he will only speak to the disciples and a few other believers before the resurrection. In history, if we were to zoom out a little bit, the Israelites have had hundreds of years. God brought them out of captivity, they rebuilt the city, and still, still, they have descended into this legalistic version of the Jewish faith. There's no love, no obedience. They have continued to be idolaters and materialists, They've continued killing prophets, chance after chance, prophet after prophet. Luke 13 says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Look, your house is left desolate to you. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the zero hour. Jesus has performed signs and wonders from north to south across Israel and Judea. Inside Jerusalem, he has prayed and taught and healed hundreds and thousands of witnesses. And we know what happens. They will reject Jesus and send him to the cross. But the judgment, the condemnation, is on them, not on him. So in redemption, We choose God and God chooses us. It takes both. And in condemnation, it takes both. You reject God and God rejects you. It is a relationship. And twice in this passage, Jesus opens the door. He says, step into the light while the light is with you. And he is speaking to a mostly Jewish audience, but we know John wants this call for us to step into the light, to go out to everyone. We've got it there in your bulletin. It's in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. John is saying, I wrote this down specifically so that anybody who reads this steps into the light. If you're standing there, if you're reading this, this is for you. It's not just for the Jewish audience, not just for the people who were there present with Jesus. I wrote this down so if you hear these words and you feel the call, if you feel that pull in your heart, step towards Jesus and do it now. He says... These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. It's an open call to repent, to confess your sins before God, to believe, and to be saved. And here we are learning something about God's character God is patient, God is loving, God is kind, but God is also just. And it says right here, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. We read in Romans and we understand our culture, how we have moved away from God as a people and as a world. This is a sad day in scripture and it's a sad day in our world today. We live in a time when good is called evil and evil is called good where anti-God mentality is called logic and reason. And it is not. It is not logical or reasonable. There is no way scientifically or empirically to say there is no God. Anyone who says, well, I'm an atheist, anyone who says that, they have taken an unreasonable and illogical position. You can't scientifically improve that. When you, when you go to the Big Bang, you say, well, I believe in the Big Bang. I've read all the science. There comes to a point. They call it the singularity. That's what they call it. It's a unique, unrepeatable event that happened in time. Can't do it. And every law of physics stops there. And you can't see past it. We cannot measure, and we have no idea, what happened before the Big Bang. We have rules. We know matter can't be created or destroyed. We know energy cannot be created or destroyed. But there was a point In time, where the universe was drawn down to a single point of infinite density, infinite heat, and then it exploded. We can't measure that. It is not possible because we live inside of it. We're not outside of it. We can't measure it. So anyone who stands and says, well, I can say there is no God. No, you can't. You can't do it because we can't see past that point. The best you could say is I'm an agnostic. I don't know. That would be a reasonable and logical position. But anyone who says, I am an atheist, I don't believe there is a God, but they say, I am reasonable and logical, no. No, you're not. You have taken an antithetical position, one that is not held in science. I'm going to skip down. We read through Romans one twenty. And it says exactly this. It says that for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. There is no excuse. The audience here is mostly Jewish, and at least some of the religious rulers are there. But Jesus again says his works bear witness to who he is. The miracles, and in this port, right right where they are, they are in the wake of raising Lazarus. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. All of those miracles, all of those signs, have testified that Jesus is the Messiah. And notice, no one, not the Romans, not the Greeks, not the Jews, denied the truth of the miracles. No historian recorded the miracles as false or a trick so we get those two things set in front of us one the wicked state of the world second chronicles chapter 36 verse 16 says exactly this it says but they mocked God's messengers despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy so we have the wicked state of the world and then we have the obvious divinity and righteousness of God. And to that, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who's received it? Everyone. Everyone has. No one is going to stand before God and say, I didn't know. Their understanding of God might look different from ours, but God is not playing favorites. No one is going to be able to stand in front of the throne room of God and accuse God of being untruthful, hidden, or unfair. And in this context, there is an audience. Jews and Gentiles, leaders, common folk, all of them have received the message of the gospel, of the good news, directly from Jesus. And Isaiah in his time, and Jesus in this time, says, Who has believed? In our wicked and godless generation, who has believed? It's become common in our culture to curse God, to curse Christians, and to use God in Jesus' name as a curse word. And again, if atheists were really moral, logical, reasonable people, more sound than Christians, they would be kind for kindness' sake. But instead, they seem to revel in cursing and blaspheming and notice they don't do the same thing to Muslims or Buddhists or Hindu or any other religion they just don't do it that alone that alone should tell you the truth about Christianity right there if that was the only behavior that you observed was that you would say why why so if atheists are partners with these other religions doesn't that tell you where the compass points doesn't it as they try and bring pornography into school, and you have these Hollywood types crying out for pedophilia to be legalized, and segregation being brought back to schools, and black and brown kids being denied science and math education in the name of equity. Children slaughtered en masse based on race and ability or income. Due process and forgiveness are no longer virtues in our culture. It used to be we held the idea that it was better for a guilty person to go free than to convict an innocent person. Now, people are tried in public courts. And if public opinion, which is often driven by media narratives rather than the truth, says you are guilty, you lose your job, you lose your income, you lose your home, even your freedom. People are are doxed or hacked or attacked in public, indicted based on public opinion. Forgiveness and grace have no place in public discourse. We listen for phrases or words that indicate what side people are on. We are constantly looking for a reason to despise and reject each other. Self-righteous anger is a virtue in our day. Being a victim, talking about how our rights have been trampled or seeking vengeance, those are the virtues of our day and our culture. Compare that to the long-suffering, patient, loving, graceful, forgiving nature of God. Paul seems to have nailed the times pretty accurately, didn't he? And the earth has been here before, a couple of times. So we get to this point about judgment, about condemnation. Like salvation, condemnation is relationship. And God is patient until he isn't. There comes a point where he cuts it off, where he says, No more time. I've given you long enough, I've given you so many chances. And you haven't changed. You haven't come back. You haven't done it. It's time to start over. Time's up. For this reason, they could not believe. They could not believe because, as Isaiah says, what has happened, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. They could not believe. You choose God, and God chooses you. There comes a point where he's done. You flip over to Exodus chapter 7. Ten times Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and ten times God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God is patient, but not forever. Genesis 6.3 says, My spirit will not contend with humans forever. Right after this, what do you expect to have happen? God pronounces the condemnation. He says, I'm not going to do this anymore. 120 years, that's what happens. God sends Noah, and Noah preaches to the people for 120 years. God is loving and patient and kind, and he demonstrates that right there. He says, the whole earth is filled with wickedness. You know, I, I read this in a commentary about that passage, and I hadn't really thought about it this way. See, remember that the whole earth is one race and one language at this time. So imagine if there was no allies to oppose the Axis. Suppose that everybody was German in World War II. Everybody. Who would stop them? Who would stand opposed? See, one of the things that happened at the Tower of Babel when God divided up the languages and the races is it created balance. Suddenly, evil could rise up, but there could be good outside of it because there's more than one. That's one of the effects that happened. In this case, before the flood, the people are unified. They all speak the same language. They're all the same race, everything. So that evil stands unopposed on the earth. Only eight people are going to make it. Only eight people will live. Noah, with the ark as the backdrop, preached the destruction of the world A flood is coming, he said. Moses went to Pharaoh and told him to let the Israelites go. Pharaoh got nine more chances. Lot lived in Sodom for 20 years before the destruction of the city. Even after Jesus is crucified, it is 40 years until the destruction of Jerusalem. God is patient. But not forever. Psalm 78, 38 says, Yet he was merciful, he forgave their iniquities, and did not destroy them. Time after time he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. Isaiah 48, 9 says, For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you, so as not to destroy you completely. In Romans, we flip over the next page, over the next chapter, to Romans chapter 2. It says, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God's patience, that time that we get, is intended for a purpose that we would turn. I wish Paul would have stopped there, but he doesn't. He says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done, to those who by persistence... In doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For, and I would underline verse 11, for God does not show favoritism. God was glorified in the raising of Lazarus. God was glorified in the life of Christ. God is glorified in his patience. That patience has a purpose. It is intended to lead us to repentance. Our culture, though, sounds a lot like the people in verse 34, though. They say, who is this son of man? Who is this Jesus? Who is this son of man? When the meaning was plain. Jesus Christ, the prophesied Messiah, was there. They had seen the signs. They had heard the words. They had heard God's voice. And yet, this is the question that comes from the crowd. Who is this Son of Man? And our world is similar. Atheists continually demand signs. If God is is good, if, if God is God, if Jesus is God, then they should show us something. But notice, they aren't genuinely seeking. They say things like, if God is good, then he can't be all-powerful because there's evil in the world, or if he is all-powerful, then he isn't good because there is evil in the world. Day and night they rail against God, desperate to lead people away from him. They harden their hearts, and God hardens their hearts. Matthew 16, though, verses 1 through 4, answers their demand for a sign. Says, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. And he replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them. And went away. What did Jonah do? He went to Nineveh. That's what he did. He went to Nineveh and he preached the gospel. God says, You want a sign? Are there messengers in your culture preaching the gospel? That's the sign. Are there people preaching the gospel where you are? That's the sign. That's what you get. That's the sign that you get. You've heard, you listen, or you don't. But you have received the sign. I sent my people to you. and That is the sign for the wicked and the adulterous generation. Christians will come to them preaching the gospel, telling them to repent and to change course. And some will listen and some don't. And Isaiah said this because, listen to this, he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. That's an incredible verse, isn't it? That we know Isaiah was talking about Jesus in his writings. Remember last week we pulled out Isaiah 53. But John and the Holy Spirit tell us that Isaiah was a witness to Jesus' glory. That's an incredible thing to say, that a pre-incarnate Jesus somehow spoke to Isaiah in that prophecy. Maybe in a dream. Maybe you met him. I don't know. Isaiah was called. Remember then? And God told Isaiah. He's like, man, it's not going to work. He told them over and over again. Isaiah's like, send me, I'll go. And God's like, go, but understand they aren't going to change. And Isaiah went anyway. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. This is heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking what this says. It says, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you. Laid waste is when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left some survivors, we would have come like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Man, that's a powerful statement, isn't it? The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Now verse 18. God says, come now. Let us settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. The word of God, preached and practiced by the people of God, is the sign the world needs to lead them to belief. So, what is the result? What happens? In the face of three years of public ministry, in the face of bread and fish, the blind seeing, the lame walking, the dead live, Jesus stands and says, believe in the light while you have the light. You don't have much time left. And again, at this point, it's not days or weeks or months or years. It is hours. And after this, he will hide himself, and then he will be on the cross. So the time chooses at hand. I've been seeing this a lot lately, the end of things, last breaths, last chances. I had a, a customer pass away a couple of days ago. I've known him since I started with, with my company. It was one of the, the guys, the I, I, first night I ever made snow, he was there. It's gone. He went out skiing with, uh, with some friends, came back, Gone. Every breath is precious. Every day is precious. Luke 17, 26 through 37 says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day of the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go back down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. And he replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. God is patient until he isn't. And what is the result? What is the result? We get to verse 42. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. Again, I wish John would have just stopped there. Great! Great! Fantastic revival. Yay. Then he puts this but in there. Come on, man. How we just couldn't have ended right there. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. I'm going to need to walk that one off. It's pretty hard to do, isn't it? To not be driven by human praise, to not be driven by other opinions of us, to not take into account what people will think, to not be scared of losing our job, losing our status, losing our stuff. That's tough. That's really tough, especially in our culture today. We live in a very comfortable place lots of great material things. I think you can get a 75-inch TV right now on sale over at Sam's Club. Jesus says, they loved human praise more than praise from God. Those were leaders, it says, who saw and heard and they understood. They could see plainly that Jesus was the Messiah. It was obvious, an open and shut case. They could probably lay out the case better than I can, clearly and convincingly. They were not saved. Why? Their hearts. In the face of the opinion of God or the opinion of man, they chose man. They were not willing to risk rejection from their peers, loss of material comfort, loss of position or power or privilege for God. The evidence was not and is not the problem. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Go back to the Matthew chapter 13, which is the seeds in the soil. Specifically, verses 21 through 22, it says, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Someone says something in opposition to what we believe and we back down. Hmm. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. These folks have what James and John MacArthur call demon faith. They know logically, rationally, reasonably about God and Jesus. They choose the world, though. Just like the demons know the truth but chose rebellion, so are these folks. They say choosing to love and obey God means losing this world, and we love this world more. We choose the material, we choose the praise of men, we choose damnation instead of salvation. They harden their hearts, God hardens their hearts. Jesus says it again, he says it louder. Jesus cries out, verse 44, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. He yells, he screams, choose the light. Choose me. Turn to me. He says, You're out of time. Please don't choose the darkness. You don't have to live in darkness. You don't have to live in torment and fire. Choose me instead. Yes, it is bright, unbearably bright, but it is better. The light is better. I'm better. Open your eyes, open your ears, open your heart. Repent and be saved. You are looking for God. Good. Turn to me. If you seek God, you will find me. Paul found out this was true, didn't he? walking on the road to Emmaus. He was desperately seeking God. And Jesus spoke to him. He said, hey man, you're on the wrong, wrong track. And Jesus says this over and over again. If you intentionally, willingly seek God, you'll find me. And if you intentionally, willingly seek me, you're going to find God. Isn't that an incredible promise? Isaiah Thousands of Muslims and Jews, by the way, have found this also to be true. If you do a quick search on Amazon, there's been quite a few books written about folks that they have been intentionally seeking God and they have been led to Jesus. Isaiah. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. Come into Jesus. Come into the light. Verse 47 says, If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. Then, Jesus gives us a glimpse of heaven, of what happens when we die. We're going to flip over to John chapter 5, verses 24 through 30. It says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word And believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of God, the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus says something about time there, doesn't he? It is coming and it has now come. Is it in the future or is it now? The answer is yes, isn't it? Jesus is life. His voice spoke creation into existence. And when we die, we will hear the voice of Christ and, like Lazarus, we will come out of the grave. You know, when, when Jesus spoke at Lazarus' tomb, he said, You know, Lazarus, come out. I wonder what would have happened if you would have just forgot that Lazarus part. Would Revelation have just come right then? Every, anyway. <laughs> I tell you, I think about these things. I don't know. But when we rise into our eternal bodies, there is judgment. And Jesus is the dividing line. Jesus is the shepherd. Those who are part of his flock will hear his voice and go to him. Those who are not part of his flock will not go to him. They will be separated as sheep and goats, like tarries and wheat. It will be obvious to everyone even yourself, what side you belong on. There won't be any quibbling, no arguing. Your own voice, your own words, you will testify whether you are a sheep or a goat. Jesus says, I came here to save you. If you go to hell, it will be over my dead and resurrected body. It will be a choice, and you will not say it is unfair or undeserved. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just, and it's just what the Father has told me to say. We have been looking at this at a personal level, level, haven't we? I've been talking to you guys directly. We're going to zoom out for a moment. We're going to look at this from the church level. Because this right here is the foundation of the Gentile church. Right here. We sit here as the Gentile church. And in this passage, the final call was given. The rebellious branch of the Jewish people was broken off. They were set aside for a minute. Not permanently, though. We always need to keep that in the back of our minds. Because they will be brought back in once the fullness of the Gentile churches is in. Romans chapter 11, verse 11 through 12 says exactly this. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And he's talking about the Jewish church. No, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. There's a purpose to the Gentile church. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, and it has, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? We sit here as beneficiaries of their stubborn rebellion. But make no mistake, Israel is God's chosen people. There is always a remnant, always a group who remains faithful. And eventually, the whole nation will be redeemed. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening, in part, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, what does it say? Verse twenty-six. This is Romans eleven twenty-six. All Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. That's the status of the church. When we think about us sitting here and them sitting there, there's a remnant. There's always a remnant. If we read through the Old Testament, there's always a remnant. There's always a core who believes. God's word will be preserved. It will be preserved long after the earth passes away. We have no fear of the Bible going anywhere. None of that. We can never just cast it aside. It doesn't exist. Same thing about the people of Israel. The people of Israel will be saved. It says right here, the nation, all of the nation of Israel will be saved. Saved. They will be brought in once the fullness of the Gentile church is done. All right. So we have looked at the fallen state of the world. That was pleasant, wasn't it? And we have looked at the obvious truth of Jesus. We have heard Jesus call us to him. And the essence, again, of this passage is in its urgency and its finality. We don't have an unlimited amount of time. We don't have an unlimited amount of chances to choose God. We don't have it. God is patient. He is loving. He is kind. But he won't contend with us forever. That's the, the whole thing. You don't get forever. There comes a point where tomorrow just isn't promised. For these folks, it was right here at this day. After this, he's going to go and hide himself from them. They actually go to the temple looking for Jesus, and he's not there. They go looking to find him, and he's not there. So it is with us. In redemption, you choose God, and God chooses you. It takes both. And if again, if there is something in the word of God, if there is something that rings through today and through this first Sunday at Lent, it is this. If you feel the pull of the Holy Spirit, if the word of God speaks to you, if you have any inkling, of the calling of God, run towards it now. Don't wait and don't put it off. Lean into that. Run to repentance and turning towards God. Let's pray. Father, we hear you. We hear your words. The truth is, Father, that We walk in a material world and we get stuck in it. It's pleasant. Please help us to separate ourselves that we would know what is the really good stuff and turn to you. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today who has not given themselves to you, that has not prayed earnestly to you, to take you as Lord and Savior, that today they would choose you, that today they would turn to you and pray to you and take you as Lord and Savior, that their hearts would be softened, that their minds would be opened, that that their lips would be opened, that they would confess your name, that that you are God, that you sent your beautiful Son, Jesus Christ, to save us. I pray that everyone in this room steps into the light, steps into the life that you have offered to us. Father, I can't help but think of poor folks in Ukraine that are huddling, afraid, lost loved ones, homes gone, evil, running through their streets. Save them, Lord. Protect them. Guide them. Deliver them. Please. We seem so powerless here, and we know that you're the answer. Whatever the, the question is, we know that you are the answer. So we're asking for that, Father, that you would deliver our brothers and sisters who are suffering under the, under the boot of war. Please, Lord, we lift up our town to you. We lift up our valley to you that, Father, that it would be pleasing to you that we could resist our culture, resist what is going on, that we could be a voice, be a, a place that lives the way that is pleasing to you. And when you would look down on Fruita, that when you look down on Grand Junction, when you look down on this valley, that you would say, that place, that place has held my name, has honored me that place has has spoken the things that are pleasing to me. And Father, if we need correction, then correct us. If we need discipline, then discipline us. Please keep us on your path. And please, Lord, provide for us that whatever mission that you need us to do, that you would send us. And give us the strength and the courage to resist the opinion of our fellow men, that we would be willing to be persecuted for your name. And we ask all of that in the loving name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.